Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Dr. Ana Maria Porras, currently a Cornell Presidential Postdoctoral Fellow. She's a biomedical engineer whose research ranges on topics from tissue engineering to the gut microbiome. She's a firm proponent of the power of representation, an ambassador for Latinx and STEM, and an advocate for inclusion and diversity. Her passion for science communication transcends a number of different media, from Instagram, where she has a bilingual social media initiative, to art exhibits and science communication workshops. Ana Maria Porras, welcome to Tidbits of Research. So you are a biomedical engineer, which is a field of engineering that applies engineering principles to medicine and biology for healthcare. What is your particular area of research within this field? Um, so I was trained as a tissue engineer, which is this idea that you can create tissues or things that resemble tissues like a kidney, for example. And the original intention was to use this to replace an organ in the human body. Um, we started to realize that this works really well for tissues like the skin, but not so well for other tissues that need to have like bigger blood supplies, for example. So I was trained in that. And then I used these tissue models to study how disease happens. And so before I used to work on heart valves, right, that control the flow of blood from the heart to the rest of your body. Um, but now I am uh, starting to work on figuring out how to apply this to study how gut microbes and gut bacteria interact with tissue in the human gut. Why is it way harder for things that are, say, not skin tissue? So some tissues, for example, don't need a lot of oxygen. Like they could be really thin, for example, and so oxygen can diffuse really easily in and out. The idea is no matter the type of tissue that you're building, you have to keep the cells alive in order for them to work properly. And so it essentially means the complexity of it really depends on like how easy or how hard can it be to have the cells keep growing. So in tissues that are heavily vascularized, so that need a lot of blood supply, like the heart itself, some muscle, it can be really hard because then you have to figure out a way to not only have the cells that make up the muscle, but also how to form capillaries and all this other stuff. Originally, I think tissue engineers thought it wasn't going to be that hard to make tissues outside of the body. Now we know that the human body is really complex and maybe our best bet is like try to apply those same techniques and maybe just provide the right cues so that the stem cells and cells inside of our body so that we can prime them and then they can make their own tissues. That's kind of like the new paradigm. So you're still kind of using the body. Yes, exactly. So that's the idea that you kind of use the body um, and use the cells as like the little engineers that are like helping to reconstruct and build the right tissue. That's so cool. <laughs> so you do a lot of work with gut microbes right now. Yeah. How many of these are within us? How big are they? Trillions. So it's in the order of trillions. Oh, gosh. There are about 40 trillion microbes that live inside or on the human body everywhere. So it, they could be on your skin, in your gut, in your mouth, uh, for women in the vagina. So they're kind of everywhere. And without them, we probably wouldn't survive very long. Are their sizes or types constant throughout our lives or do they change? That's a great question. It's actually a really good question. Um, it depends on the body size. So when we're born, we have very, very, very few bacteria. For example, 
in our gut, which is the specific microbiome site I study. So newborn babies can have as few as only three to five different bacteria, which is crazy because adult people can have thousands, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So and, and very quickly, when you're a little kid, the most critical period in the development of your microbiome is when you're very young. And so over your childhood, it can change a lot from when you're a baby to, let's say, when you're like a teenager. Once you're an adult, there's a lot of strains that are more or less permanently associated with you. And there are a lot of strains or like types of bacteria that are really genuinely like unique to you. Like they won't be exactly like other people's, which is kind of insane. Is it like a fingerprint? Yes, exactly. Your gut microbiome? That is a perfect way to describe it. Your gut microbiome is like a fingerprint. Like yours can look similar to, for example, the people you live with, but it won't be exactly the same. So our gut microbiome can tell someone who they live with. What other kinds of things can you tell? (laughs) (laughs) If you were to analyze a person's gut microbiome, you could probably infer a few things about what they eat. So modulating the types of food that you eat can also change your gut microbiome. Although to have like a long lasting effect, you would have to like dramatically change your diet, right? So like, Yes, if you go to McDonald's and eat like a burger, maybe some of your microbiome might change, but those changes won't stick around unless you keep eating burgers every single day. (laughs) Right, that is the way to like completely alter your insides. Yeah. Or if you take long courses of antibiotics, antibiotics can, of course, wipe out your entire microbiome. And then that can be that can be really problematic. That's why sometimes, right, they recommend that you take an antibiotic with other stuff that kind of like protects I don't know the right terms for this. Yes, exactly. To protect your microbiome, really. So for example, I have a friend whose puppy, she's like a foster mom to a puppy. And this puppy just went through a very long antibiotic treatment. And the vet recommended taking some probiotics now to kind of replenish that microbiome. So yeah, I mean, the same can happen for humans. So you are originally from Colombia. Do you think this has informed your choice of study? And if so, how? So initially, no. When I decided that I wanted to be a biomedical engineer, I don't think that like living in Colombia influenced what I studied. It did influence where I studied because biomedical engineering as a discipline is very young all throughout the world. Um, But in Colombia in particular, when I graduated high school, there were only a handful of universities that offer the program and it was in in its infancy really. And that's why I arrived in the United States is because here there were more robust programs. So definitely not for undergrad, like as far as what I studied, same, not not really for grad school either. I just knew I was really into this idea of teaching engineering, so I kept studying, but definitely for my postdoc. You often do a postdoc because you want to become a faculty member. And so you're supposed to think about Okay, if you become a faculty member and you have your own lab, what kinds of things do you want to study? And I knew, like, uh, one thing about the field of tissue engineering is that it's a really expensive field. Expensive to... Like, the supplies that you need, the type of equipment that you need, a lot of that is expensive. And so for that reason, it is less developed in the global south. Also, in the field I was in before, biomaterials, tissue engineering, there are some now, now... post me graduating uh, grad school a little more. But back then, there, there was really not an emphasis of global health with either of these fields. So there's a lot of global health within biomedical engineering, but more related to like making devices and things that are you know not so much on the truly biological part of biomedical engineering. 
I knew I would want to eventually work with people in Colombia and I wanted to work on global health. I knew that at some point in my career, I really want to get into tropical infectious diseases. And so very long story short, had to network a ton to figure out who I could train with because people in my field weren't really doing this kind of work. And through word of mouth and word of mouth and word of mouth, I arrived at the lab where I'm at now, studying the microbiome in the context of how different people around the world have different gut microbiome. So that that did influence it. (laughs) And word of mouth is the way to network that one would recommend with these things. Yeah, for sure. Especially with postdocs, because when you're a student or even when you're looking for faculty positions, there is still some word of mouth involved, but you can easily go to a website and see if a department is accepting applications. But for a postdoc, it's really lab specific. So sometimes there's a million labs throughout the world. So you may or may not know who's hiring. And in my particular case, I had to go outside of my field. Like I didn't know anyone who was doing what- Your inner circle. Yeah, nobody was really doing what I wanted to do. So then my advisor and I literally would go up at conferences to people and would tell them more or less what I wanted to do. And then they would recommend other people and those people would recommend other people. Oh gosh. And like eventually it was like genuinely a really long line of like, oh, have you thought about this person and this person? So it really was like a networking effort. Human connection. Yeah. (laughs) So you mentioned that you really wanted to eventually study tropical infectious diseases. Why was that? Yes. So where I'm from, Colombia, is really affected by tropical infectious diseases. I've always been interested in those. It's just, you know, you sometimes forget parts of what you're interested in. It's something that we're definitely going to be exploring in my, in my future lab. I'm really interested in understanding how both good, so both, say, members of the microbiome as well as bad microbes or pathogens that cause these diseases, how they interact with human tissue to drive how we feel, whether that's for our health or to make us sick. But then also, these tropical infectious diseases are often called neglected infectious diseases. And and the sad thing about neglected diseases is that it's estimated that about a sixth of the world population is affected by these neglected infectious diseases, which is actually the same number of people who live in North America and Europe. So I think they're only neglected because they affect the wrong people, right? The people who don't have, like the countries that don't have the resources that the global north has. And so I I think that's an opportunity for me as an engineer to apply a lot of the tools that we've already been using for other diseases to these diseases that are less understood. A very fortuitous term, neglected, right? Exactly. So it's like neglected to whom? Exactly. Because for clearly for people in these communities, they are not, you know, it's part of their everyday lives. Right. You were mentioning another thing earlier, um, that this discipline is very young, but also very active. Do you think this is partly because of this global connection or partly because of the development of artificial intelligence in the past? I don't know, 20 years, maybe I'm imagining that that can play a part. It's funny that you mention it. When you said this field is very young, I wasn't sure if you were talking about biomedical engineering or microbiome science, but actually both are really young. Oh. <laughs> so like in, in within engineering, biomedical engineering is more or less the newest discipline because engineering fields are really, really, really old. For sure. But like most biomedical engineering departments are maybe 20, 30 years old, which is young for academic discipline. And people migrated. So what really happened is that people would migrate from other fields. So it's like some departments started out as chemical engineering departments, but then some people started to really be like, no, but I really want to study medicine or biology. 
just BME, but BME encompasses a ton of things. In terms of the microbiome specifically, the microbiome field really was born with the revolution of sequencing technology. And so that really is because a lot of the microbes that live not just in humans, but also in the ocean, in soil, live in such extreme conditions. So for example, in our gut, they live in anaerobic conditions, meaning no oxygen. That a lot of them are really difficult to culture in the lab. And so until sequencing arose, right, in order to study something, you had to be able to culture it. But now with sequencing, we can do a lot of analysis without culturing anything. We can just take a look at the DNA or RNA, so at the genetic material, and then infer a lot of things about what's going on in the communities. It was with sequencing and then also the bioinformatics boom to like also develop the software and the algorithms to analyze all of these data. That's what really caused the exponential growth in microbiome research because this field really is only maybe 15 years old. It's like really, really young. Which is very exciting for like its potential. Yeah. Let's talk about hashtag microbe Monday. Basically on your Instagram account every Monday, you post a picture of a new microbe you have crocheted and the story about said microbe. Do you know how many you've done so far? Oh, I wish I knew. I counted last year, but I haven't counted since. Well, new ones that I have designed myself around 50, maybe a little more, but Micro Monday posts, oh, I don't know, like probably over a hundred because they're not always about bacteria and they're not always patterns that I make myself. Every now and then I'll do something that someone else designs. Um, but I've been doing this for two years, so a while, yeah. If a year has 52 weeks. <laughs> oh my goodness. How did you decide that this was a means for you to like make your research more accessible? That's a great question. So the first part of the idea, which is using crocheted art, so in most often in my case, microbes, to talk about science, really arose from a festival that I attended, the USA National Science and Engineering Festival, with other people at Cornell who also do microbiome research, and we were just brainstorming ways to attract kids to our booth. And so then that was just kind of my idea. And I don't think anyone, including myself, expected anything special to come out of it. But then, like, it really did work to attract the kids to our booth. And the other volunteers also used them to explain some microbiology concepts. And I made, I think, five or six for that. So and since I already had a bunch of them, I was like, oh, I've been wanting to do something on social media, too. So I'll just do, like, hashtag microfundays. In retrospect, I kind of wish I hadn't made it like the weekly <laughs> hashtag, more like a generic hashtag. Too much work. Yeah, because now like, you know, like today is Micro Monday and it's probably not going to include a new crochet biker. But I don't even know what I'm going to post today yet. It's throwback Monday. Yeah, I kind of wish I hadn't done a weekly thing because it's a lot of work, but it's been really fun. Do you remember anything that the kids said that time long ago? Like what kind of responses? I know a lot of them were like, can we buy these? Can we take these? <laughs> we were like, no, sorry. <laughs> but a lot of them were just curious, like, oh, what what are these? And why are they shaped the word if they are? One very specific thing that I remember, one of the volunteers, a professor at Cornell, John Buckley, he used, I made a bacterium called a spirochete. It's shaped like a spiral. So he was demonstrating how these bacteria, they move like a corkscrew. So they'll just like spin and because of their shape, that propels them forward. So they don't swim like you would imagine, like a bacterium swimming like this, but rather they would turn like a corkscrew. 
And that that really was the moment when I was like, oh wow, like really, you could describe this like I did this to you just now using words, which takes forever and it's not very clear. Or you could just show someone. Right. In like two seconds. Yeah. And that was like the light bulb moment, especially since like microbes by definition are defined by beings that are so small that you can only see them with a microscope right so in order to access what they look like etc you need a microscope so this is also a way to make them more visible and kind of help people get excited about microbes in a non-threatening way so people get excited in a threatening way <laughs> well i just mean that say right now right we're thinking about microbes a lot before because of covid yeah. but like in a threatening bad way so that's what i mean by that like for sure um, a big part of the mission in microbe mondays is so every now and then i'll highlight a pathogen but most of the time i'm really interested in talking about how beneficial microbes are for us and for the environment and for animals and for plants etc so going back to responses, you were mentioning that a professor used this for a certain purpose and then kids got really excited, so you sparked their curiosity. What other things have people been telling you about this? Yeah, that's a great question. Because of the platforms I chose, so because I'm primarily on Instagram and Facebook, that's really not uh, an under-18 audience, to be honest, right? And so usually on social media, I'm interacting more with college-age students, with a lot of people my age, so between 25 and 35, and also with grown-ups. So that's kind of a different audience. But I do a lot of other outreach activities in person, and I recently dabbled in TikTok briefly. And so those are younger audiences. There is a little bit of everything. And I think really... If I do a story well, and it's like something unexpected, the most common response is, whoa, I had no idea. That's so cool. I would say that's like the most common response. The other thing I do, not all the time, because it's a lot of work, but maybe like 25-ish percent of the time is talk to a Colombian scientist. And then I'm like, if you let me talk about the microbe that you study, sometimes it's not even microbes, but let me talk about this. I'll make you a little microbe, you can keep it, and then like, let me share your story, let me interview you. And in those, the response has been so positive. So I do this in English and in Spanish, but particularly my channel in Spanish, from different angles. Like it will be both people who are not scientists, who are like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, I'm so excited. I didn't know that someone so young could do this. And also a lot of college students follow me. So then a lot of people are also like, I want to know how this person got there. Uh, how did they make it? How did they leave Colombia? How were they able to like study abroad? I didn't know this field existed. Uh, I didn't know you could do this with this degree. So that, that is kind of a different aspect to it. It's very far reaching. Yeah, yeah. I remember I did a poster a while ago for a conference. And so I did like a survey on my Instagram stories. And some of the things that they said, I was just like, whoa. <laughs> some people said it was like shifting their perspectives or who could be like a scientist, right? Because the problem of picturing uh, scientists as like old white men, that's not exclusive to the United States. So that's the case both here and in Colombia and in many places across the world. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So just to go into a little more detail, just as you have Micro Monday on one Instagram account, you have a separate one in which you post a regular Micro Martes mm -hmm. in Spanish, and you profile Colombian like scientists and engineers, and you're very kind of active about having this bilingual social media initiative. So 
Tell us a little bit about why that's so important for you, because this sounds like an insane amount of work. It's a lot of work. So again, one of one of those things where like if I were to go back in time and do things differently, I probably wouldn't have an English account. Like probably my English account would be more like personal stuff and whatever I wanted to share. And I would concentrate on my Spanish one because it is a lot of work, but I feel like I already have an audience in English. So I kind of feel bad just like leaving them hanging. But yeah, my, my Spanish account started. Um, I remember specifically because I was already doing micro Mondays for maybe a month, maybe a little longer before I started the account in Spanish. And I specifically remember that one of my cousins said, that she loved what I was doing, but that she couldn't understand it. Like she wished she could understand it. And that really got me thinking about how, you know, she's right. Like she is right. Like not even my family can see what I'm doing. Like that's not right. And then I became even more passionate about it because then I was just like, I was really torn on whether I should do my captions half in English, half in Spanish. Like I know how to do it. And so then I started looking up Psycom accounts in Spanish and I couldn't even find 10 compared to in the United States. Like now there are way more than 10, but when I was looking, there really weren't. And compared to the U.S. where we already had two years ago, hundreds of science communication accounts. And I'm, I'm also sure it's because I also wasn't plugged into the SciCom community in Spanish yet. Mm -hmm. But either way, I was, I, I continue to be appalled by the lack of science communication content in other languages, not just Spanish compared to English. So I was like, no, I'm going to do a separate account. And I'm pretty passionate about making sure that, well, on Micro Mondays and Micro Mondays, it's more or less the same content, um, but making sure that the context and the way in which I make it relevant is unique to the needs of each audience. And there's different types of people following both. So for example, in my Spanish account, like I mentioned before, a lot of my audience are college students, which that's not really the case in my accounting English. So of course they're going to be looking for different things. So going off of what you just said, you have a recent article that appeared on Frontiers in Communication in which you argue that, and I quote, there is a language bias in the current global scientific landscape, this language being English, of course. Um, so in fact, not knowing English is not just a language barrier, but it is a scientific barrier. Now, I feel like the kind of knee-jerk response to this is just, well, people should just learn English. That's the language that the best research is published in. And it kind of reminded me of this because of something that you just said, which was, I have this English audience, English speaking audience, and I can't leave them hanging. I can't tell them to like learn Spanish. <laughs> um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about kind of like that article and all of this research that you've done in kind of this scientific barrier, basically. Yeah, so this is an article, an opinion article, really, that we wrote with my friend uh, Melissa Cristina Marquez, who's also a Spanish language science communicator. Um, she's Mexican and Puerto Rican, but she's currently based out of Australia. And we just kind of really wanted to highlight how big of an issue it is. Um, and in that article, we quote, for example, work by uh, another friend, Valeria, who did some research actually in Colombia, where she showed that this need to learn English, like you mentioned, of course you can learn English. Pretty much every scientist who's had to leave their country has had to learn English in order to make it anywhere, right? So of course we can do that, but then that in itself is inequitable access to resources to learn English for a variety of reasons. Because one, because it is really expensive. And so then she found that in, I think it's biology specific researchers in Colombia, English proficiency is directly correlated to like socioeconomic background. And so people who have more resources are like me, for 
example, like I went to school when I was growing up to a bilingual school. So like, of course, it's going to be easier for me to speak English. I've been learning it since I was three, right? Compared to some of my friends who I know here who are grad students and postdocs here at Cornell who started learning as adults or as teenagers. And then there's also time, right? Learning a language takes time. So one of the things I think about a lot, I think I heard this in a podcast one, is what if those people could use all those hours to do other things? Like, for example, do science <laughs> instead of learning, learning English. It's honestly really problematic and there aren't easy solutions. Like we proposed in the paper, the solution is really multifactorial because it includes things like journals providing translations of their papers. It includes things like institutions, both in English-speaking countries and in non-English-speaking countries, valuing presenting your work to any type of audience in a language other than English to the same level of prestige than others. It includes using social media, like I do, to reach a wider audience. Uh, it includes providing training for students to learn how to communicate science in their native tongue, because that's another thing that's sad is that sometimes you're trained in another language and you don't even know how to communicate what you do in your own language. Yes, that resonates very deeply because I remember when I came to the U.S., I'm originally from Romania, and when I came to the U.S., I started learning all of these math things in English. And then I remember going back a few years later and someone asking me about my research, and I was like, well, I know all the terms in English, but I could not tell you any of them in Romanian. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of sad. So I also run a group called Latinx in BME in biomedical engineering. And we just started a collaboration with the Tissue Engineering and Regenerative Medicine Society. And we just started an initiative where every Friday we're translating some very common terms in that field to Spanish so that people can have at least like basic vocabulary. So going on in this teaching science communication direction, you had a project on teaching science communication with Clubes de Ciencia Colombia. Tell us a little bit about how that project came to be and the kinds of activities that you did. Yeah, so I work a lot with Clubes de Ciencia in Colombia specifically, but Clubes de Ciencia exists in a lot of different countries in Latin America and in Spain. It was born in Harvard and MIT, and the original idea was by two uh, guys from Mexico. And so their thought was that like, oh, what if we could go back to Mexico and put together like six weeks long courses. And in other parts of Latin America, the the idea is to provide high quality STEM education to more college age students. But in Colombia, the initiative started five years ago, a year after the original first version in Mexico. And the idea is to provide high quality STEM education, but specifically for middle and high schoolers. So we're targeting a slightly younger population. And so I had heard about it. And then last year I was really like, one, I got involved like as a volunteer permanently in like their executive committee. But then also I really wanted to be an instructor. So I applied and I kind of applied with an honestly an unconventional idea. Because they're usually like very science engineering, research specific, like being lab, make things, code type of project. And so I proposed a club on science communication. And so the idea of these clubs, they last a whole week. And the idea is that they're completely experiential and community-based learning, a community-based in the sense of not necessarily going out to a community, but like the, the kids learn with each other and from each other. And so we did a lot of hands-on things. Like we learned how to interview people. We learned how to identify fake news from real news. We talked a lot about using art to communicate science 
um, and using theater and things like that. So it was just a really fun experience. How did the kids like it? They really liked it. Like I was really nervous because I was like, are they going to like this thing where we're not blowing anything up? <laughs> like it's kind of this nondescript idea, but a lot of them liked it. So you lead it as like one instructor who's based outside of Colombia and one instructor who's in Colombia. My co-instructor is a colleague that I already knew and we both work with bacteria. So a lot of the stuff we emphasize was microbiology related. And so I think they learned a lot and we try to make it really interactive. And it, it, was, it was really fun. Uh, being an instructor for Clueless is always um, much more rewarding than you think it is going to be. Have you kept in touch with any of the children? With some of them, yeah. So not, not with all of them, but I do keep in touch with some of them. One of them just started, like he just started his first semester in college. And so that was like pretty exciting. And at the same university that hosted the club. And so that was that was really fun uh, to hear that. Yeah. yeah. You are a um, AAAS If Then Ambassador. The AAAS is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And this If Then program basically brings together 125 women from science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to serve as high-profile role models for middle school girls. Again, there's a theme here, right? Your, your outreach with this particular um, age group. But what kinds of activities have you been involved with as an ambassador? And have you had to rethink any due to the current situation? Those are both great questions. So as if and ambassadors, we do a lot of stuff, not only related to middle school uh, girls, but the, the general idea is to increase the representation of women in STEM in a variety of different ways. And so there's been a ton of different things. Let me think. There's so many that I, I should sit down and write them down <laughs> sometime. Um, well, first of all, the really cool, cool part is that there are 125 of us from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of types of careers. So there was a summit in a last October where we all were there together, getting to know each other. So that in itself was really enriching. Um, but since then, I've also, especially with COVID, I've done a lot of virtual engagements with classrooms around the U.S. and with children who are doing like summer camp at home. Like curiosity camp? Uh, so that was a different one. Yeah. So then the other thing I've done is uh, with the IFDEN program, we often partner with other members of the IFDEN coalition, like Goldie Blocks. And so I was part of a series that Goldie Blocks, the toy company, started this summer called Curiosity Camp. And so we got to shoot a short video about microbes. And that was pretty fun. And um, we also get a chance to apply for mini grants to kind of put together our own projects and so originally the idea was to travel to Colombia we're hoping to still do that but at a smaller scale now um, and so I'm proposing that but of course now we have contingencies for next year in case like of what we'll do if we can't do it in person um, and then the other thing that's really cool that actually went live today is that there is the Ibsen collection and so this Ibsen collection has thousands of pictures and videos of women doing science and engineering and math and technology, et cetera, um, completely free, available for teachers, for anyone who needs like pictures of women in STEM. And so I'm super excited about that. You have been very vulnerable publicly about a number of experiences you've had from this recent thread on Twitter on your life as an international student to this recent webinar that SACNAS, the Society Advancing Chicanos, Hispanics and Native Americans in Science, 
organized on imposter syndrome. And you have also been very deliberate about not separating your personal life from your social media life, which is humbling and inspiring. But as I also mentioned, it's incredibly exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of made you make that decision? I think... Well, one, it was seeing other people who were doing the same. So the, the first time that I can specifically recall thinking, oof, I don't know if I should post this. This is like putting myself like way out there. But at the same time thinking like, no, this is necessary. Like I have some sort of following. I mean, granted, I don't have, there are people who have like 100,000 followers. I don't, my community is not quite that large, but it, it's still a good number of people who follow me. Um, and my friend, Melissa, whom I wrote that paper with, she posted her own struggles with mental health uh, during Mental Health Awareness Week. And that's when I was like, you know, just Melissa really inspired me to share my story. Because when I saw hers, I was just like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Like this woman has been on Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. I think she's incredible. And she has gone through this, what? Um, so then I posted my own story on Instagram about anxiety. I was really nervous, right? Because I wasn't sure what kind of responses I would get. And what I ended up getting was a ton of people being like, wow, maybe what I'm experiencing is anxiety. Thank you so much for sharing. I also struggle with anxiety. I didn't realize other people struggle with anxiety. It was the same with Atsaknas webinar on imposter syndrome. And so the more I share about these things, like you do have to be careful, right? With what you share in what platforms and with what audiences. Like mm-hmm. um, I probably wouldn't be as open about imposter syndrome in other conferences or with other societies, but with SACNAS, that's kind of what SACNAS is about. It's a safer space to share this type of thing. But I think over time, the responses have really reinforced that, that maybe we all suffer so much because we just like don't talk about all these things that happen in academia and in, in, and in science. And this brings so much this idea that you were kind of referring to, which is the issue of representation. Mm-hmm. To some extent, we, we lack people that either feel the things we feel or look the way we look or say the things we wish we could say. And so on the one hand, it is great when we have those role models. But on the other, kind of from your end, it comes with this the word that comes to mind is burden like do you feel like it's a burden to like have to do these things or say these things that's a great question no I do not feel it at all like a burden and I've been thinking a lot about this since Black Lives Matter because I kind of shifted that in my mind right a lot of times we think of a lot of this work as extra work but I think if we really want all not just science but any field that you're in to be just equitable inclusive diverse all of those things right We need to stop thinking of these things as extra and think of them as being all of these initiatives, all of these efforts as being directly linked and intrinsically important for the type of work that we do. And I personally don't feel like it's a burden. Like, do I sometimes overwork myself a little? Yes. But like, I don't want to lessen my burden. I I don't usually take on more than I can handle. These are all things I like doing. What I wish would happen more is that one, other people would do this work more then maybe the rest of us would be asked to do it a little less. And also I wish it was recognized formally in things like fellowship applications, uh, promotions for tenure, decisions on whether you should graduate or not. And then it wouldn't be a burden at all, right? It would just be like one other thing you're doing as part of your job. 
And so, no, I don't see it as a burden. I just wish other people would stop seeing it as a burden and recognize it for what it is. <laughs> Which is invisible work, right? Yeah. So your parents were also engineers. What kind? Yeah, my dad is a civil engineer and my mom is a systems engineer. And how did they feel about your becoming a biomedical engineer? I think we were all collectively excited because it was, you know, they know engineering, but like none of us really knew what it would exactly entail since, you know, it's like such a new discipline. You were embarking on an adventure together. Yeah. And it's funny because my sister is also an engineer. She's an industrial engineer. So like everyone in my family, we're all engineers. Do you think the fact that your parents were engineers has affected your choice of study? Probably. I feel like maybe that has changed. But when I was in high school and in and maybe here in the global north, it's a little bit different. But in Colombia, often it seemed almost like if you really wanted a job that paid decently, there were only a few options and engineers was one of them. So I think honestly, that also kind of pushed me towards engineering. Plus, also, you're so young. Like when you choose what you're going to study, you're so young. I'm not sure that I also knew what all was out there because sometimes I'm like I could have studied graphic design or maybe I could have been a chef <laughs> like I could have been a lot of things you know right or actually like if I had known that science communication was more than editing journals and working at a newspaper like of course psychoma as a field has grown a lot in the last three years but if I had known that before like if I had started doing micro Mondays before my PhD I'm pretty sure my PhD would have been in something else that's fascinating. And maybe even my postdoc. I don't know. So it's just funny how like things end up playing out. Yeah. Well, Ana Maria Porras, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been so much fun. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I would like to thank, once again, Ana Maria Porras for joining me today. Her story has definitely made me think about how things play out in our lives. You know, the invisible threads we rarely pay attention to, and how things we didn't get to do need not be a wasted opportunity, but perhaps a confirmation of the rich variety of things we could do. I hope you've had as much fun as I have learning about the gut microbiome, the importance of a global perspective on researching diseases, the excitement of working in a field as new as biomedical engineering. And I hope hearing about these crocheted microbes has sparked your interest. You can follow Ana Maria Porras on Instagram at Anama Porras or at Anaerobias. Our music is Float and Fly by Goldgard Tally. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.